we turn in God's inspired word this evening to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. On this occasion of confession of faith, I call your attention to the 10th verse as we consider Moses' call. But we read together Exodus 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in the midst thereof, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. I call your attention especially to the 10th verse of Exodus 3. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we consider this text, we must remember that some 80 years had gone by since God sent Israel's deliverer into the world as a baby, placed in that ark of bulrushes and set along the riverside. God had chosen Israel as his peculiar people, and he would fulfill his promise to Abraham to bring his people out of the land of Egypt after having made of them a great nation. A nation from which Christ, the Messiah, would come. And to preserve his people and to see their growth as his people, God had led them into Egypt where they had prospered. They had grown as a nation physically and numerically. They were fruitful and multiplied, as the Bible tells us, according to God's purpose. But as so quickly happens also with us, the Israelites, even though living primarily in their own particular region in Goshen, they nevertheless came under the influence of Egyptian culture and began to embrace it. They had it good in Egypt. 
their sinful flesh laid hold of the things of Egypt. And you can see it later. You can see the influence that Egypt bore upon the mindset of the Egyptians when you see their desire to return when they ran into the hardships of the wilderness wandering. But God had made an abiding difference between his people and the Egyptians and would preserve his church. God will call his own out of Egypt. So the first thing God does is to cause his people to desire to leave Egypt. And he must bring them out in a way in which they themselves are willing to come out. This he accomplished by raising up in Egypt a new king who didn't know Joseph any longer, didn't know that history, a king who began to be jealous of Israel's prosperity and fruitfulness and who began to fear them politically. That king brought the people into terrible bondage, determined to thin their ranks, he issued a savage, vicious decree calling for the deaths of all the baby boys in Israel. It was in that time frame that God sent a deliverer to his people. But he sent that deliverer as a baby. And though God preserved that baby in a most wonderful way, an amazing way, it would be years before that baby was grown and capable enough to lead God's people. God was at work here. Oh yes, he was sovereignly working according to his divine purpose, which is always good for his people. The people of God, you understand, must be tried. They must be purified and cleansed, even by fire, as it were. Sometimes that process appears to be very, very slow. It's painful. It's always that way. It's the way it is in all history. Don't misunderstand. God works a perfect work in His time. He does. So that baby Moses grew, became a child, teenager, a young man. And of the first 40 years of Moses' life, we read very little. Scripture isn't interested in satisfying our curiosity about Moses' life. It will point us to that which is important. God's work in realizing his covenant and saving his people also through Moses. And while it is true that Moses himself thought that he was ready at age 40 to deliver God's people, God made clear to Moses 
that he would take on that calling only on God's terms and in God's time. So at the age of Moses, at the age of 40, Moses is ready to choose for the afflictions of God's people rather than all the pleasures of Egypt, which are only for a season, except that when Moses was 40, he thought he could do it by himself. He was bold. He purposely left Pharaoh's house that day in order to deliver Israel. And he saw an Egyptian, you remember, fighting an Israelite. And he killed that that Egyptian. He wanted to set the wheels in motion to deliver God's people. Well, he set the wheels in motion, if you want to think of it that way. Not in the direction he was thinking. He had to flee for his life to Midian. And for 40 years in Midian, he would walk alongside sheep. Try to visualize that. 40 years walking beside sheep when he thought he had been ready to deliver Israel. God taught Moses, you see. He learned patience. 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 He also learned how to walk humbly with his God. So that when the Lord told him to go to Egypt at age 80, Moses said, Lord, don't send me. Send someone else. His bravado, his confidence, his attitude of cockiness was gone. He had become nothing. And that's the way it must be. So with those things in mind, we consider Moses' call. And we look at the awesome scene, and we see his quick decline of this call, and then we notice the final charge that God gave him. What an awesome work of God was his appointment and call of his deliverer servant named Moses. When Moses fled Egypt, the Lord provided a place for him among the Midianites. He provided his, a place for Moses among the God-fearing. Because Ruel, friend of God, also known as Jethro, was a God-fearing man, as becomes evident in second the in the record of Exodus 18, where he gives wise counsel to Moses. He was a descendant of Abraham by Keturah. By outward appearances, it's only a matter of circumstance, what the world would refer to as chance, that Moses comes into contact with this brother in the Lord, And we know, of course, this is a beautiful evidence of God's wonderful providence. 
guiding Moses' steps. And God in this way also gave Moses a wife, the daughter of Jethro, Zipporah. But in addition, we learn that Moses became a shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep. So in obscurity, far from Pharaoh's palace, far from the, the other Israelites and their grief in Egypt, Moses lived a life as a shepherd for some 40 years. And again, we say, how marvelous are the works of God. While Israel continues to suffer under the burden of Egypt's bondage, the one who is to be their deliverer lives in the solitude of the wilderness tending to sheep. God was honing him, knocking off the rough edges of Moses' impetuous and impatient nature, schooling him in patience and meekness while tending sheep. And when he emerged from this school of shepherding, Moses is a very meek and patient man, fit to endure many more years of suffering and, and sorrow. And at the same time, God was working among his people in Egypt preparing them for their deliverance. And so we read at the end of Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Isn't that beautiful? God remembered his covenant. He always does. He heard the cry of his people and had respect unto them. He saw them as he, as he ever had. He saw them in their Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christ yet to come. But notice, God prepares to lead his people out of bondage by making them feel like they are in slavery. Don't forget the typical significance of that. Egypt was a picture of the bondage of sin in which we are all held. Have you been given to know that bondage? That's what sin is. There are many who find pleasure in their sin. By nature, we love the way of sin. Even though sin is the deepest form of bondage. Bondage which leads inevitably to death. But when God gives us to know the nature of sin, when God gives us to see the bondage of sin, 
when we understand that we are helpless in ourselves to overcome even our sinful flesh that would bring us to death, then and only then does God show us the deliverer. So when the deliverer has been prepared according to God's amazing purpose, and when his people have been prepared for their deliverance, God calls his deliverer from the fields of Midian, from the midst of the flocks of Jethro, and appears to him in a most awesome way. Moses, we are told, led the flock to the backside of the desert. He was located by the mountain range of which one mount in particular would later become known as Sinai, the mountain of God. And at Horeb, God appeared to Moses in a wonder. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. What an amazing sight that was. There in the plain, on the edge of the desert, and before the mountain, was a common shrub, a bush that's commonly called a bramble bush. And given the location, it was a dry bush. And it's burning. It's on fire. And Moses is struck by the sight of the fire in this bush. The fire appears in the midst of this bush, setting it ablaze. And as Moses wondered how that fire began in that bush, that lone bush, he watches and is even more struck by the amazing phenomenon that this dry burning bush is not consumed. Rather than being turned to ashes with one flaming branch falling off and then another, this bush burns brightly and continuously as a torch supplied with oil. Moses leaves his sheep for a moment to, to walk over and examine this burning bush more closely and carefully. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, the God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Jehovah God appears in this burning bush. What we have here is a sign, even as God himself makes clear to Moses by the voice of his presence in this bush that burns but is not consumed, Jehovah speaks, and by his presence he turns this place into a sanctuary of his holiness where Moses has no place in himself. It's the same way in the Lord's house, do you understand? By the Lord's presence, 
by the voice of his holiness with which he speaks to the hearts of his people, he turns this place into a sanctuary of his holiness and compels us to cover our faces, figuratively speaking. We are to come before him in humility and with awe. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. No one with polluted feet can stand before him and live. And you understand it's not only Moses' feet that are polluted. Moses himself recognizes that his whole being is polluted with sin. Because see, he hides his face. Afraid to look upon the God who appears to him in the midst of the burning bush. That the Lord would appear in a flame of fire is not a strange thing in the light of Scripture because we read, for example, in Hebrews 12, verse 29, that the Lord is a consuming fire, he's holy. In his great love for himself, he will maintain his own glory, consuming everything in his path that would oppose his holiness. But that fire is also a means of purifying. As gold is purified by fire, so the Lord purifies his people. He saves, even through those purifying fires that are experienced by his people as fires of tribulation and affliction. And while these people, like a dry bush, would seem easily and quickly to be consumed by that fire, nevertheless, they're not consumed. Jehovah God is in the midst of them. Why are they not consumed? We are told it in verse 2, and the Lord further expounds it in verse 6. In verse 2, we are told that the angel of Jehovah was in the midst of that bush. That's a significant Old Testament name. You boys and girls must know that the angel of Jehovah in the Old Testament is not one of the created angels of God. It's God himself. Only, only more particularly, the angel of Jehovah is the angel of God's presence, his face as it were. It's the Old Testament appearance of Christ, the Son of God. The fire of God's holiness burns upon him. He's not consumed. In this Old Testament prefiguration of a great spiritual truth, that of the gospel of our salvation, Jesus himself bears the wrath of God that would have consumed us. In and through him, God reveals himself, preserving his people in the midst of that fire of their tribulation, God comes to deliver them. So the Lord says, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And he would do that because he is Jehovah, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's the God who keeps his word. He had established his covenant with Abraham and his seed as an everlasting covenant to be a God unto him and to his seed after him. He had said to Abraham he would make of him a great nation. He had also said that Abraham's seed would be strangers in a strange land for 400 years where they would also be afflicted And he had said, centuries before, don't forget, that he would lead them out of the house of bondage and fulfill his promise to them, showing his faithfulness as their covenant God. His perfect purpose is being fulfilled. And the same is true for you and me. So we rejoice when we see his handiwork among us, even in our youth. We rejoice knowing that we are not worthy of these great blessings, knowing that we ourselves too are only capable of bringing forth seed that would be consumed. But Jehovah God reveals himself in his Son, as the deliverer of his people. But then comes the stunning word for Moses. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I can almost feel the shock that went through Moses. God's power is quite sufficient to deliver his people. But he chooses to deliver them by means of a human instrument, a man who also would serve as a type of Christ, the Deliverer. And at this awesome scene of God's holiness, Moses is stunned by the call that God gives him. Forty years before, he would have, Moses would have been ready to respond with an immediate acceptance to this call even with an unholy zeal, because he wasn't prepared. He would have taken upon himself that for which God had not yet qualified him. 
He had not realized that the work of delivering God's people must be entirely God's work. He had not realized that God purposed also to reveal his glory in Egypt among vessels of wrath whom he had fitted for destruction, as we read in Romans 9. So at that time, Moses would do God's work on his own. He wasn't ready. But now, God having qualified him in a way that Moses was not even aware of, Moses was overwhelmed by the very thought of this amazing calling. And Moses was quick to decline the call. Any remnants of self-confidence were gone. The past 40 years of service as a shepherd had taken Moses' mind completely off any idea of serving as the deliverer of God's people. In fact, those years, as he looks at them now in the light of this amazing calling that God gives him, were years which to his mind made him forever unfit to accomplish such a superhuman task as God now sets before him. It wasn't that Moses had lost all hope in the promise. It wasn't that Moses was an unspiritual man. But all that prior confidence in his own strength and his own ability to lead had been completely removed from him. He had become nothing in his own eyes. But because of this, because of this work of God in him, Moses had become a fit instrument for the revelation of God's glory. He just couldn't see it. He didn't want to see it. And Moses said unto God, Who am I? that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. In mercy, the Lord responds, and he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. This is the Almighty God who speaks. And on this occasion of confession of faith, I would call your attention to the fact that the truth he sets forth here is broader than just that which he spoke to Moses, the minister whom he had chosen. The words, certainly I will be with thee, are words spoken to all his people and in every place. He abides with his people. He abides with you. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And when he says, I will be with you, we must remember who it is that says that. He's the one before whom all the nations of the earth are as nothing. Nothing but less than dust in the balance. The kings of the earth, according to Proverbs 21 verse 1, are like the rivers of water in his hand. He turns them whithersoever he wills. His is not merely a helping hand for that burden that you find too heavy to bear. He's with you as God. He says, roll that burden unto me. He's the strength of his servants. The task is his. He accomplishes his good pleasure, leading us in perfect wisdom. We are his handiwork, Scripture says. What more can we want, beloved? Is there anything greater? What a blessing to be servants of such a God. And as a sign, the Lord points to the future fulfillment of his promise. This shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. He's going to give Moses more. He's going to give him to do wonders in Jehovah's name. He will confirm his calling by giving him signs. But if all the signs are tokens, confirming Moses' calling, this is the crown. The children of Israel, with Moses as their deliverer, shall serve God upon this mountain. After having led his people from their bondage, he will bring them to this mountain where he will come down and speak his word to them. And here, as in a figure, Jehovah will will reach out for his people through the cross and take them to his own heart forming them a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation that they should show forth his praise. That will be the chief sign of the Lord's blessing upon Moses' labors, a confirmation of Moses' call. But Moses was weak. He still wavered. He thought about the calling, about the people with whom he must labor. They had rejected him before. How would they hear him now? He has no prominence among the people. He's not even known by them. He would come to them as a lowly shepherd. And he should lead them? How would they recognize his authority? Let the Lord choose another man. Let him choose someone younger, more prominent, more gifted. That Moses might cling to the power of God's almighty hand and the power of Jehovah's faithfulness, the Lord emphasizes the glory of his own name. I am that I am. 
Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. I am. The unchangeably faithful covenant God. Moses is sent to tell them that Yahweh, Jehovah, the I Am, hath sent him. All in the service of the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of his people in the seed who is yet to come, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Moses has excuses. He still clings to his decline. He insists that the people will not believe him. That they will not listen to him. That they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto you. And as we read in the first part of chapter 4, Moses gave, God gave Moses more signs, signs that he would be with Moses, signs that Moses must not attempt to escape this call. God has given him all that he needs. But Moses continues to be afraid and unwilling. And when he insists that the Lord send another, the Lord's anger was kindled against Moses. And thus the Lord gave the final charge, giving Aaron, Moses' brother, as Moses' spokesman. God will not accept Moses' decline. And I call your attention to this, beloved, again, not merely for its application to a man called as a minister of God, because you see, Moses' decline is not like the decline of a minister who is led by the Spirit to remain in the Lord's work to which he presently is called. We desire in the coming months that the Lord provide another pastor, but we may well face many declines. Those aren't declines like Moses. His decline is like that of a person who refuses to confess his faith, who refuses to confess his Lord in the midst of this world. The Lord, after all, gives gives each of us many callings. We're called to glorify Him in all that we do. We are called to seek Him, to live unto Him, to love Him always. We are called to confess Him as Lord over every aspect of our lives. God gives us that charge. But He also works it in you who are His. And so we see in the life of Moses as well. Jehovah is about to redeem and deliver unto himself his covenant people, but it must be 
completely clear that the work is his, not the work of a man. This work is his realization of his promises, of his counsel, of his wonder work of grace. And it's important that we understand that truth. It's important for a proper understanding of what follows in the life of Moses and of his position and work. It's important for a proper understanding of God's dealings with Pharaoh and with Egypt. It's important for us to see that God's work, his perfect work, is something he accomplishes with us. God is delivering and forming unto himself a covenant people. And he's doing that also here. In this congregation. As he's doing it in our churches and in his church throughout the world. God is at work. God has raised up a prophet like unto Moses. He's the fulfillment. One who is infinitely greater than Moses has come to deliver you and me. You believe that? God has given us a deliverer to break the bondage of sin and death. He came with divine authority. He gave himself to his people's cause completely. And as God sent Moses to bring his people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, so Jesus Christ came to bring out his people. Everyone. Not one of them shall be left behind. Not one. God is at work, working his perfect work, accomplishing his good pleasure, guiding us by his counsel afterward to receive us to glory. And so we must live too. We stand before him, not in our own strength. We have nothing to bring. We look upon him who alone is our Savior and our Deliverer, our strength. So we confess him. So we live before him. And so we are seen as his workmanship. So Moses goes, in the consciousness of the love of God, knowing that he is called to God's work and not his own. Because he's God's friend. He will go to his, to his father-in-law Jethro and ask to be freed from his work as a shepherd. That he might take up the Lord's work in Egypt. He will gather the elders of Israel and through Aaron speak all the words that God gives him to speak 
he will declare God's word to Pharaoh. Confirming God's word with many signs and wonders. And God will work his mighty work of grace, gathering, defending, and preserving his church. No, not every Israelite. For not all are Israel which are of Israel, but his church. Moses never forgot this awesome scene. Nor the glory of him who appeared in that burning bush. Even in his last words that he spoke, when he gave his parting blessing to the children of God, In Deuteronomy 33, verse 16, he pointed to the goodwill, that is the amazing good pleasure and acceptance of him that dwelt in the bush. God will save his church. He does that also today. He continues that work also here. And to him be the thanks, for his is all the glory. Amen. Gracious Father, once again, we thank thee for thy word. And above all, we thank thee for the wonder of our deliverance. In Jesus Christ. We pray that thou wilt continue to abide with us and bless us, defending and preserving us also as a congregation to the great day of the coming of our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.